Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I ended up robbing some banks. But I wouldn't classify myself as a bank robber. How did you find yourself in a situation where obviously desperate mm. to go and rob a bank? Or was that a thrill? Now, we're going to meet a man who robbed banks to pay for his wife's IVF. Reed Domingo end up spending nearly four years in an American jail. Patrice and I, if we wanted to have a child, would have to go through IVF because Patrice had a tube cut. Went home, sat down and did a bank requisition. And then I came to realise, wow, I'm 10,000 in the hole. And I realised 72 hours from now, those cheques are going to be arriving at my bank and they're going to be bouncing. I've got to come up with $10,000 in less than 72 hours. You know, if I use that information, I could rob a bank. And that's what I did. And I'll be honest, it worked. I robbed the banks first thing in the morning. Because don't forget, I used to go to work at 6 o'clock. So I used to take my lunch around 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. I'd go to lunch. So I don't want to say, again, make it sound blasé, but I used to rob banks during my lunch hour. You're joking. And as I'm getting to the door, and they're still banging, I'm like, you know what? When I open this door, somebody's going to be laying on the ground. And I pull the door open. I look down on my chest. Bing, bing, bing. Three red dots on my chest. I look up. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centres around the concept of second chances, examining who deserves them, who is in a position to grant them, and what they represent. We feature guests from all walks of life, including those who have been given second chances, as well as those who may be deemed undeserving. Reed Domingo is a charming man with an unbelievable story. Struggling to pay for the expensive cost of American IVF treatments, he found himself in debt to the tune of $250,000. When the situation became unbearable, returned to bank robbery as a last resort, even going so far as to carry cyanide capsules in case he was ever caught. Having worked in a bank and undergone extensive training on how to handle robberies, Reed knew exactly how to exploit the system during his lunch breaks. 
walking away with tens of thousands of dollars each time. From a privileged background to resorting to desperate measures, Reed was determined to relieve himself and his family of the financial burdens that came with trying to have a child. Eventually, the FBI caught up with Reed and he was arrested. In this episode, you'll hear all about how it happened and what followed. Reed's story is truly one of a kind and he now lives a completely different life. He dedicates his time to helping former prisoners become better people. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming in, Mr. Reed. Thank you very much, Ralph. My pleasure. Is it Domingo Reed or Reed Domingo? Oh, see, that's the, that's the prison thing. No, Reed is my first name and Domingo is my last name. I don't know much about your story, but I've read a couple of headlines and not necessarily all of the articles because that's what you do, right? You read the, the, mm. the headlines, gives you a, a, an upshot. The, the papers described you as a bank robber. Mm. The papers described you as somebody who robbed banks ruthlessly, etc. I always like to start interviews asking my guests how they describe themselves. So how would you describe yourself as opposed to the way the media or other people who don't really know you would describe you? Mm. You know, I, I, to be honest, uh, Raf, I'm just an ordinary guy, a family man, just, just like that, who happened to, as a consequence of circumstances, I ended up robbing some banks. But I wouldn't classify myself as a bank robber. It's a very small period of my life. It happened. And I can be honest with you right now, I haven't robbed a single bank in the last uh, 22 years. You say that quite proudly. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I just, just mean, obviously, if I had a propensity for crime, other than this spate of bank robberies, I have a completely clean criminal record. Okay, I've got a parking ticket here or there, but I'm not a bank robber. And I, I should never have found myself in a situation of being a bank robber, simply because I, you know, I was born in South Africa, but raised here in the United Kingdom. I was going to say, actually, because you speak very well, if, if I'm allowed to say that, and I wanted to just check in on your upbringing. So you've just said you were born in South Africa, but brought up here in the UK. Tell me a bit about your childhood. So yeah, I was born in 1964 in apartheid South Africa uh, to two parents that looked just like me, or I'm the product of my parents, but not both of my parents are, would be considered in South African terms, Cape Malay. It is obviously a subgroup within in South Africa. And uh, visually or uh, you know, facially, both my parents look like myself because uh, one of the things a lot of people ask me is, oh, are you mixed race? You're white mom, black dad, vice versa. And it's like, no, both my parents ethnically look like me. I'm a product of that. So I was born there in uh, 1964. And as a consequence of my father being a biochemist, he was uh, relocated to uh, the United Kingdom uh, I suppose it would be Maidenhead specifically, in 1967. And obviously they shipped my dad out and his family. So we arrived in the UK in 1967. And truly for me, all of my upbringing has been here in the United Kingdom. And I consider myself to be British, 100%. Even though I was born in South Africa, I came here at three. And, and do you have any siblings? I have one sister. I have an older sister who's 11 months exactly older than me and it's just the two of us 
What was your life like when you were growing up in the UK? Oh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I, you know, I, I, it's so sad for me to hear people talk this country down. It's a wonderful country. And it has, it, you know, I really can't think of anywhere else in the world that gives you any greater opportunity. Possibly, I might still say the United States. But oh, growing up in in Maidenhead in the late 60s and early 70s was wonderful. When we went to junior school, my sister and I were the only two children of color in the school. Yet, I was never made to feel like I didn't belong or that we were. so interesting because oh. most people who come from that era who mm-hmm. are of color in a school where there is not many people of any ethnicity other than white British English often talk about experiencing racism. None whatsoever. I never experienced racism growing up as a kid. And I don't know if that's a, if that's a consequence of it being maidenhead. Uh, it's a very conservative sort of area, if you know what I mean. And I would say it's a, a little affluent, more affluent. I mean, obviously, you know, we didn't live in a in a, on, a, on a sort of a council estate or anything like that. and But yeah, I didn't really experience racism as a kid. I had a wonderful childhood and I had two parents that truly loved me. Very lucky. Um, and most kids don't experience that. I say oh. most kids. It's not true. People from certain backgrounds. What was your education like then? Where did you go to school? What was you like at school? So basically state school. I went, you know, we, my father, although he was a biochemist, he, he was basically a working man. And uh, so my sister and I went to, you know, state-sponsored primary school. And then right around the time I was 10, my sister was 11, we moved from Maidenhead in Berkshire to a little town called Abergavenny in South Wales. It was mainly to do with my father's business because he was looking to expand. And it was at a time when the coal industry was on the decline in South Wales. So they were very much trying to draw other businesses in to employ local people to substitute for the declining coal industry. So they'd opened up an industrial estate in Blanavan, which is just outside of Abergavenny, and they enticed my father to bring his company there. He would, they would get a building, they would get cheap rates, cheap electricity, so long as he employed local people, which my father did. So it was a win-win. My father needed to expand his business but didn't have the funds South Wales were looking to draw businesses in, so that's why we moved there. As a consequence, obviously, as time went along, I then enrolled in a comprehensive school with my sister. It was called King Henry VIII. And there, oh, I believe, you know, I'm going to have to say, I think there was another Indian couple, (laughs) another Indian brother and sister at the comprehensive school. But we're talking about comprehensive school, four kids, four colored kids in the whole comprehensive school, again, any racism? None whatsoever. It was wonderful. I, I, I don't. I, I can't answer that for you specifically. Is it why did I not experience racism? But I'm a, just a very lucky individual, and I had a wonderful time going through there. And as my father's company became more successful, it also coincided with me just completing my O levels. And it was at that point that my mother and my father were in a position to afford for me to go to a boarding school. So there's an all-boys boarding school, part of the original charter of public schools. It's called Monmouth School for Boys on the River Wye. 
And even though it's only 17 miles from Abergavenny, uh, my parents said, you're going to be a boarder. And although initially I thought, well, I mean, I could be a day boy. You know, you can drive me in every day. Back and forth. I was so grateful because those two years that I was at Monmouth boarding school, uh, Monmouth school for boys, as a full-time boarder was some of the best years I've ever had in school. What was your aspirations then after school, leaving school? What did you want to become? You know, I thought my, my father sort of plotted that out for me. He was a biochemist. And, you know, I am academically sort of competent, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. So my father mapped out my future for me. I've got 10 O-levels, and then I went on and I did uh, maths, chemistry, and biology at A-level with the intention of studying biochemistry once I'd completed my A-levels. That was all done. I had an unconditional offer to read biochemistry at Bath. And about two weeks before I was supposed to start, I told my dad, oh, I don't really want to do this. And my dad was not too happy. And he said, well, you're not sitting on your, on your duff for a whole year. Mm -hmm. You've got to do something. So I took another accelerated course and sat another two A-levels during that year off. So I now have five A-levels. And at the end, I was supposed to go do something. And I ended up pursuing a girlfriend that I had at the time. And I followed her to Portsmouth Polytechnic. Oh, you can see my dad was so <laughs> chuffed with that. Oh, yeah. 10 O-levels, 5 A-levels. You know, I paid for you to have private education, and you're going to a polytechnic. And I don't mean to, to put dispersions on that, but obviously back in the uh, – that would have been the early 80s, 82, I believe, was when I completed my A-levels. The aspiration was that you go to university. And I had an unconditional to read biochemistry at Bath – so my dad was not happy that I chose a polytechnic. It was pretty much, though at that time, that was considered maybe just one step above mm. a, a mm. adult college of further education. Mm. But obviously, I went there. It was mainly to, because of this girl. I was studying civil engineering. Again, I just picked it because she was going there. And I, I was looking at unfulfilled courses. And here was civil engineering. And I had a girlfriend, previous girlfriend, whose father was a civil engineer in Africa. And he lived in a palatial place. So I thought, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> so that, that was the reason why I read civil engineering. I hated it. And after two years, I failed. And I left. And I went back to work for my father. At some point, you ended up in America. Yes. So after working for my father for a year, we his company had, had now grown to the point that we actually had a satellite office in San Diego, California, uh, as the United States was actually the biggest market that we supplied to. And it was around Christmas of 86 that my father said, you're going to, you're going to San Diego for two weeks. And I said, oh, okay. He said, yes, they've got this computer system over there that I want you to take a look at and see if there's any way we could implement some of that sort of stuff here in the United Kingdom. So on Boxing Day, see, that's my dad. Oh, no, no. Boxing Day. Yeah, I flew out to San Diego, and what was supposed to be two years, sorry, uh, two weeks, turned into 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. What was it that kept you there? Uh, robbing a bank. No. <laughs> no. What kept me there was, obviously, I, I worked with my father. I was only supposed to be there two weeks. By the time I did everything, it actually was, I was there pretty much for four months, and at the end of that period, he realized, you know, you would be a good asset for the San Diego office because now I knew all of the, the customers that we had in the United States. And so he said, how would you like to become part of the sales team in San Diego? And I thought, yeah, I was 22, San Diego, 
Abergavenny. <laughs> no, brainer. Mm, think about that. Mm. So it was a wonderful opportunity for me. And within a year, I became vice president of sales and marketing. Probably helps that your dad run, owns the company. <laughs> but I, I, I became uh, you know, vice president. And within the next three years, I tripled the company turnover. It was wonderful. Which, which is why I'm, I'm sitting here intensely listening to your journey. Uh, and I want to get to the bank robberies because mm. you mentioned it a couple of times. You, you, it sounds like you're, 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 you know, you're running a very successful business owned by your dad. No doubt it brought the fruits of that labor financially. Um, how did you find yourself in a situation where you were obviously desperate mm. to go and rob a bank? Or was that a thrill? No, no, I'm glad you put it that way because it was not in any way, shape or form. It really was just as a consequence of, of other factors. I was, it, you're right, I was, everything I was doing for my dad was absolutely successful. And I have, a, as you can see, th my relationship with my dad was kind of quite tenuous at times. And uh, when I went to San Diego and I was doing well for the company, we were in one of those really good times between my father and myself. What I decided to do at one point was I took some classes in the evening just to you know, learn something else. Very quickly, I demonstrated through my evening classes that you know, maybe I should focus on something. I did classes in the evening, and in the space of a year, I got straight A's in all of my classes. I was on the dean's honor roll, and I, and I passed on all my stuff to my dad, and he was so impressed. He asked me, Reed, if you focused on it, how long would it take you to complete a degree? And the way it's set up in San Diego, they have four-year courses in America as opposed to three here that we three years that we have here. So at that point, I told my dad, well, another three years and I'd be done. And my dad said, you know what? Don't come to work anymore. Get yourself enrolled in university. Complete your degree. And when you've finished, then come back and work for the company. It was a, it was a you know, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. He would still pay my salary or my salary would still get paid through the company, but I didn't need to go to the office anymore. I could just focus on my studies. And basically, that's what I did. And uh, it was during that time that I met, while I was studying, that I met Patrice. Uh, Patrice used to work at the gym that I uh, used to train at. And she was my girlfriend at the time. It was her boss. Patrice was her boss. And... My girlfriend, uh, Trisha, used to babysit Patrice's two old, oldest children. And every now and again, I would obviously drop the kids back off for my girlfriend, do her a favor. But Patrice and I never really spoke. I, you know, she was my girlfriend's boss. I respected that. She was a beautiful California blonde, married to a professional athlete, an, an ex-NFL player, living a wonderful life. And, um, uh, no, I, I never, I always, so that was the, about 87 I met Patrice. And then in 1990, when I was studying, circumstances came to be that Patrice and I started dating. She was going through a divorce at the time, and uh, we started dating. Uh, about a year or so later, the divorce was finalized, and uh, we decided, let's get married. And when we got married, I was a, still a young man. I was probably, gosh, 20, 28, 29 uh, the subject came up about having children. And at that point, obviously, we realized Patrice and I, if we wanted to have a child, would have to go through IVF because Patrice had a 
tube cut. And we did try to do a tubal reversal, but it didn't work. So the only option for us to con conceive for Patrice was to go through IVF. At the time, it was considered experimental. It was still early 90s. And as a consequence, insurance companies would not pay for any of it. They considered it, one, experimental, and secondary, elective. It's your choice. This is not life-threatening. If you want to do this, it's your business. So as a consequence, none of the costs were covered under insurance. And I'm, I'm sure, as you're aware, the cost of medical uh, uh, procedures in the United States is astronomical. And there is no NHS. So you, you have to pay for everything. You have to pay for it. Pay for it yourself, either through your own medical insurance or just out of pocket. Had you not saved money from your working for your dad's company? Had you not made enough money that you had savings? And we did. And I think when, when we embarked upon this in, uh, in 92, again, we were only having to basically circum circumvent the, the fact that she didn't have these fallopian tubes. We were both healthy, fit individuals Patrice had already conceived and brought three pregnancies to full term. So they considered us to be prime candidates for IVF because all we were doing is just circumnavigating that, or circumventing, sorry, that uh, no fallopian tube. You know, do our thing outside, put those embryos in the, in the uterus, you guys are done. Mm. So they anticipated one round, you should be done. One round costs $15,000. And, that, and that's obviously for the, the procedure itself and all of the associated medicines, which were at that time running us about eight to 9,000 just for the medication, and then about five, 6,000 for the actual procedure. It was unsuccessful. Okay, you know, size, just roll of the dice, but next time you guys should definitely get a winner. Mm. Second time, unsuccessful. Third, fourth. Fifth. Now, by this time now we've now we've ready we're into this for like three years. We're into this. We've had four, five failed attempts. And I wouldn't say we were obsessed with it then, but we couldn't see any reason or nothing was presented to us as to why we're not having a success. So now obviously we're talking some serious money. Mm. And we had we had easily surpassed a hundred thousand that we had put out of pocket. So I didn't have all of that money at the time. So what did I do? I borrowed it. I borrowed it on credit cards. I borrowed it from family. I, you know, I did, I, I used to have a whole load of motorcycles that I used to race, uh, sold all of my bikes to try and raise funds for IVF. To cut a long story short, at the end of five years, we'd gone through about $250,000 out of our pocket. And I was financially devastated. And by the grace of God, truly the last time that I thought we could do it, I had sold everything, every asset I had, I had sold. My father had put aside some property in South Africa for my sister and myself. Really, it was supposed to be for our retirement. Coastal property in Cape Town, and I sold it. I, Although I had to go through my dad to do it, he allowed me to sell this investment that I had in South Africa but it was through that money that Patrice and I were finally able to secure that success. And although, Patrice, although we now had a success in, in having our little girl, whom we called Angelique, the damage was wrought and uh, we were f financially in a massive black hole. Why didn't you, and this is a question coming from someone who's not been in that situation, and I'm sure there are lots of people out there who are going through IVF who 
are determined to keep on trying in many different ways. Having not been successful so many times, why did you not give up? Because I didn't, I, I never saw a reason why I, sh why should I give up? And, and it's, it's a, it's a good question because I, maybe, maybe if I had looked at, looked at it through a different uh, prism previously, maybe I, sh we should have given up. Well, no, that's not how I'm framing it because you now had a little girl out of it. <laughs> so so it's, good. It's, like, oh. it's so good that you didn't. But, you know, at the time when you were, you know, getting yourself in a lot of debt, you know, sacrificing things like properties um, and everything else, you didn't give up. You, you had a lovely girl, but now you had this debt. And so, so now we had this debt, and, and, and I think things got compounded for me. So we, Patrice has just delivered our little girl. You'd think we'd be in that honeymoon period or whatever it would be associated with having a child, and that we should just be basking in the glow of finally being a family. Excuse me. Unfortunately, during those five years, every single time we started a new cycle, one of the things that the physicians did was they increased the hormonal medication that Patrice was on to try and stimulate her for more eggs, more eggs, more eggs. We got to a point that she was on a, a protocol that was the highest that any of these physicians had ever been on, ever put a patient on to try and stimulate more eggs. Their, their, their assumption was that once Patrice got pregnant, the pregnancy would basically reset all of her hormones and everything should be fine. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen. And within a couple of weeks of Patrice giving birth to Angelique, her whole body crashed. We didn't know why. Nobody knew why at the time. But the way it manifested itself was that Patrice felt so tired and so fatigued that she couldn't even get out of bed in the morning. And this is, this is not the person that I met and married and had a child with. So we knew something was was not right. But all of the physicians that we, we, we went to see, we went to see heart specialists, endocrinologists, everybody, and all of them were giving us their ideas to why Patrice is experiencing these symptoms, but nobody could, nobody seemed to, to take into consideration all of this hormonal medication that Patrice mm. had been on. Mm. It eventually got to the point that some of the physicians were saying, maybe this is psychological in that, you know, maybe Patrice is just imagining all of these symptoms because we can't see anything wrong with her. Yet she is telling us that she's feeling these very significant symptoms. So it was at that time, my wife is now incredibly ill, sometimes so ill that she can't get out of bed. What I decided to do is I said, Patrice, I'll take over the, all of the running of the household. You don't worry about bills or anything like that. All I want you to do is focus on yourself and being available for Angelique. And it was because of that that Patrice had no idea of the financial situation that we were in. And I was trying to raise money, trying to get you know credit limits raised on, on my cards and things like that. I think we'd taken out a second, possibly taken out a third on our house. So we'd exhausted all of the equity in the house. I couldn't raise another blue bean you know on credit and uh, by this time I, I was working uh, for another bank uh, writing software for a, a commercial bank and uh, you know it was every day I was just you know I, I was I was getting up at uh, you know 
five o'clock in the morning to be at work for six so I could work early and be out by three to miss the traffic on both sides, this is Southern California. So, and then I'd come back and my wife would not really be very well. And, and basically all of these pressures plus the financial thing that I was keeping away from Patrice, these were just building on me, building on me. And, and I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna be an honest guy in the sense that it got to the point that in the evening, Patrice would want to go to bed around nine, 10 o'clock. And, and, I, and as I, you know, I should have too. You know what, let's go to bed. I got to be up early in the morning. But I didn't. I said, no, you go to bed. And I'd sit up and I'd just smoke weed and I'd watch TV. And I would just basically try to numb myself mm. to the point that I was going to just pass out. I'd go to bed about 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And I'd be up by 5 to get to work for 6. There's only so long that you can maintain that sort of thing. And it wasn't healthy for me. And then one day in uh, in uh, 2000, I um, did the bank rec. I, I wrote, sorry, I, I paid all the bills. It was May. I wrote all the bills. That was the time we still wrote checks, put them into envelopes and mailed them. I did all of that, threw them in the mailbox, went home, sat down and did a bank requisition. And then I came to realize, wow, I'm 10,000 in the hole. And I realized 72 hours from now, those checks are going to be arriving at my bank and they're going to be bouncing. Mm. I've got to come up with $10,000 in less than 72 hours. And it was at that point that I remembered some training that I happened to have when I was working at the bank. And what was that training? What do you do in the event of a bank robbery? And it was through the training that I had at the bank. And maybe I don't want to go into it too specifically here because it was information that I learned through that training that inspired me to think, wow, you know, if I use that information, I could rob a bank. And that's what I did. And I'll be honest, it worked. It worked. I basically, so so I went in and, and obviously as crazy as it was, I knew if I followed these parameters, you could, you could successfully rob a bank. And I went in, I applied them, and I walked out of there with the money. So there is a way of doing it. But I, as I said, maybe it wouldn't be appropriate for me to outline what it is because I do not want to give anybody any ideas. It was of course not, a good idea. not. But can you share with me what you did? I yeah. Because when we think about bank robberies, we're thinking balaclavas, guns, kicking off the door, everybody at the ground, pointing at the cashier, pass the money, off I go. Yes. Well, and, and interestingly, no, I did nothing of the sort. First and foremost... I was robbing these banks by myself. If you really want to take a bank down, you need to be more than one person. You need to be at least two people. One person to control all the people, one person to get the money. You know, by yourself, you can't be in two places at once. That's if you go in through the front door yes. as a traditional, I say traditional, yeah. but you know, this kind of portrayed bank robber. What was your method? So basically, um, Still went in through the front door because people think, oh, if I worked for a bank, did you do, and I was a software programmer for a bank, did you do like that office space thing and, and you know, take a little bit from every account, you know, every transaction, a fraction of a penny. But when you multiply that over the millions of transactions that occur in a bank in a day, those fractions of a penny add up. No, I did it old, old style. I walked in through the front door. However, I knew that you don't have to cause a scene. So not making a scene is a, is a big thing. And, and I suppose this I can tell you because it is part of you know, the 
information that's out there. When I went into the bank, I obviously dealt with a teller. And I have a very distinct British accent. So I realized you really should not communicate with the teller because she'll be able to identify you're British. So I basically printed out my instructions on a little postcard-sized uh, piece of paper <laughs> that I actually laminated. So I, I, so I just handed it to the teller, and he or she, invariably, actually, they were all female. She would read it and follow my instructions. If you want, I can tell you exactly what was on that. Yeah, tell me. So it said this, stay calm, we are not joking. Follow these instructions and everything is okay. Put $10,000 in the bag. Use hundreds, fifties, and twenties. The next four lines were each underlined. No fake money, no die packs, no alarms, no tricks. Stay calm, do it now. That was it. That was the extent of my interaction with the teller and we're talking about a teller who's working behind a counter that doesn't have the level of security that you would find in banks today absolutely that that is the key point and i mean i think we've both seen some banks you are interacting with the teller through purse banks and if obviously something like this occurs the teller has the ability to press a button whatever and immediately mm. shutters come down screen goes up that the banks basically shut. So you're absolutely right, Raf. The banks that I was targeting at that time, I specifically chose because they did not have any type of barrier between you and the teller. And what about your persona as you were handing over this note that you just shared? Did you have a weapon? What was it that made the teller comply? What What was they scared of? What would they have been scared uh, of? You know what? It's, it's a good question. Uh, invariably, I just wore a baseball cap and some ref reflective sunglasses. I used a bit of an MO in the sense that when I entered the bank, I carried a motorcycle helmet and I wore motorcycle gloves. The gloves were obviously so that I didn't leave any fingerprints. The motorcycle helmet was to throw off the bank and law enforcement, because the inference, if I'm carrying a motorcycle helmet... That's your escape. That's what you think, I came on a motorcycle. Did you disguise your appearance? Uh, yeah. When I, obviously, I was working at a bank, I was wearing a you know, shirt, tie, slacks. I would just change into sweatshirt, jeans, baseball cap, reflective sunglasses. So no real disguise other than you hid behind. And you didn't have a weapon. You didn't use a weapon and point a gun or a weapon at the cashier. I did. I had a, a semi-automatic, a forty-five caliber semi-automatic. However, I knew that you did not need the weapon to rob the bank. And in all honesty, Raf, I had the weapon because it was for if I came out of the bank and the police were there waiting for me, it was my intention that I would not see the rest of that day. Really? And that's what I had the gun for. And, and that was because I, the, the situation I was in at the time, I was so unhappy and so distraught and desperate. I, I was at that point where I really didn't care if I lived anymore. This might be a, a, an awkward question, but how did it feel? And awkward only in the sense I'm asking because I think it's, it's interesting. How did it feel the first time 
you did this. And I appreciate you saying what you just said in terms of you're in such a desperate situation and what was going on back at home. But how did it feel doing it during that very first time? Because I can imagine how scared you must have been, let alone the cashier. Um, and then after, when you were successful the first time. You're, you're absolutely right. Truthfully, when I was standing there, my heart was beating faster than the tellers. One, as you can see, you know, my presentation when I came in to the teller was not aggressive. It wasn't a case of everybody get on the ground, shooting off guns, terrorizing the teller. When I came up to the window over where she was, where her counter was, she greeted me. Oh, you know, welcome to Washington Mutual, you know. I would just slide the uh, the note to her and say nothing. I never spoke to the teller. The teller would obviously read the note, understand what my note entailed, but because of the training that the teller you had knew had, how they would respond. I knew that the teller knew I this is what I have to do. In fact, I have been through this exact scenario before. And just to be clear to anybody listening to this, it will not work in real life no. today, right? <laughs> no, so don't it's a, this take a different any world now. It's You're absolutely right. World. Thank you, Raf. It's a different world. The first time you did it, the cashier responded by giving you the money you asked for. Yes. You've now got the money. Yes. You've got to turn around and walk out of that place. Mm. There were people probably standing in the queue behind you or waiting to be served who had no idea what was going on. They probably thought a normal transaction was going on. Absolutely. But then you had to cross the floor in the bank and walk outside the door. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, in that very first bank, there was security in the bank. But it was an old boy. It was, a, it was an older gentleman. I'd probably guess maybe in his 70s, you know, pressure, slacks, nice belt, had a badge and everything. What he did not have, though, was a gun. But what I do remember, when I first came into the bank and I, was, and I came, it was 9.30 in the morning. I robbed the banks first thing in the morning because don't forget, I used to go to work at 6 o'clock. So I used to take my lunch around 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. I'd go to lunch. So I don't want to say, again, make it sound blasé, but I used to rob banks during my lunch hour. You're joking. Yeah. And and it was it got to a point where when I was doing this that I would write up my thing, oh, yeah, go rob a bank. And then I would, in my mind I would say, oh, yeah, and make sure you leave about leave enough time thereafter to get to Burger King so you can pick up a burger and fries for you when you're back. It was, it was bizarre, but I... Um, but how would you want people to interpret that? Because some people will think that you must have been in a mental state where you could you know see it like that burger rob bank pick up kid do, you know extra like a shopping list because it because it went so smoothly i was i i don't want to again i was very good at it in the sense i never had any issues in the bank i knew what to do i went in i was very low-key and that's the same because i was so low-key you were absolutely right there were other people other customers in the bank they had no idea that I was robbing the bank. And when I left, you know, obviously her, her counter was closed, but I never made a fuss in the bank to draw attention to myself because it went so smoothly that first time. And, and you know, obviously, you are just going back a little bit. When I left the bank, oh, my heart was beating. I was having to tell myself, do not run. I wanted to run back to my car so quickly, but I knew don't run. If you see somebody running... Just naturally, your curiosity is, oh, why, why are you running? If you're not in jogging shorts and a tank top, your question is, oh, why is that person running? Are they running to catch a bus? Are they running for some reason? Why are they running? Mm. 
So that was the reason why I said, do not run because that draws attention to you. Uh, so when I robbed that first bank, I came out, beautiful sunshine. I walked away from the bank. I parked around the corner and down the hill a bit. So right when I came to the corner, I looked back to see if anybody was coming out of the bank. Nobody was coming out. I was able to get into my car. Well, that thing, I the first bank I robbed in my truck. Threw the helmet in there, threw the, the money and the bank bag and my gun on the floor. Got in, drove away from the bank. I remember that first bank I got maybe two or three blocks away from the bank. I'm driving away from the bank. I see three police cars coming straight towards me, lights flashing, sirens blaring. They're coming right to me. We drive straight past each other. Why? Because they're looking for a motorcycle. So that aside, I went back to work, changed. I was like Mr. Ben. I changed out of my adventure and I put my suit back on and I went back to work. And then I would just listen on the radio to local radio to see if there's any reference of a bank robbery. And there never was. They never, ever spoke about a bank robbery occurring in San Diego when I did one. And then uh, that first night, I remember I came home that very first night. And I came in and, and Patrice was there and uh, she'd made dinner and everything. And uh, she said, oh, you know, oh, can you give... Angelique a bath and I was like oh, of course of course I'll chuck her in the shower and everything like that with me and I remember after we were finished and I was drying her off on the counter and I had her sitting on the bathroom counter and I was looking at the mirror so I'm looking at the mirror uh, Angelique is sitting on the counter and I realized damn damn you know you could be dead right now and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and I said don't ever do that again you know you could be dead right now and I remember picking up Angelique and I gave her such a hug and I just like oh god this is what it's this is what it's all about. But it wasn't, was it? But you know, I, again, see, I, 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 I have to back up because one of the things I did leave out of this is the fact that um, what, what question that you might say is, why didn't you talk to your dad? You know, when you were in this situation and, and you had no money and everything, why didn't you talk to your dad? Because I borrowed some money from my dad a couple of years earlier. Money I think I did use for IVF or for something else at the, at the time. And I had a rental property. And it was only $20,000 I borrowed from my dad. And when I, my, the, the agreement was when you sell the rental property, then you pay me back my 20000 One of the things I got into to try and earn money was I got into day trading, uh, you know, where you buy stocks, but it's exactly as it says, day trading. Whatever position you're in by the end of the day, you, you close out your positions and you take your licks, win or lose. So I studied this for about six months before I went live. I did it with a friend of mine in San Diego. And the, the, the plan was us for us both to study and then open an account together. But it took $100,000 to open an account. When I sold my house, I would be able to generate about a, just a little over $100,000, but I was, I was sharing it with somebody, so I'd only have to put in about fifty. Right before we were about to go live, and we'd studied it for six months, and I got it to a point where I, through the method that we were employing, I would end up making about $1,000 a day. It, that's a pretty nice return, you know, 20 days a week, 20 grand a month. Hey, that's some good money to make. And so I got this down, and it seemed to be working. And then right about two weeks before we were supposed to go live, my friend decided, oh, I want to, let's keep it separate. I want to do, I want to do it my own. So that meant for me to do it myself, I had to take all of the money from the sale to do it. 
including 20,000 of my dad's money. So you didn't pay him back. And I didn't pay him back because unfortunately I lost the money within about 60 days. I lost most of the money, liquidated what I had left. But I called my dad and I explained everything to him and I told him that this is what I was trying to do and da, 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 da. And it was at that time that my dad said to me, don't ever call me again. Oh God. And I knew that my the relationship I have with my father is when my father says something, that's it. My father does not repeat himself. If you think I'm joking, I was 15 years of age one time. And I, well, we all were. I was 15 years of age and I used to go out drinking with my buddies on the weekend. Everything, and my dad got kind of tired of that. And I remember I was going out one time. My dad said, you know what? Be back by 10.30 and don't, be, don't come home drunk. And I go, okay, yeah, dad, okay, okay. Well, of course I go out, and as soon as you have that first drink, forget about it. Mm. I finally come home about midnight. Drunk. Drunk as a skunk. My dad is sitting there when I come home. I'm staggering around. My dad looks at me and he says, right, that's it. You're not going out for six months. It was September. I'm 15 years of age. I did not go out in an evening until uh, until March the following year. So it just gives you an illustration. That's when I was 15. Man of his word. That that's what it was. When my father said something, I never backchatted my dad. If he's When my dad's talking, I shut the F up. And I never spoke back to my dad. And you'd let him down in, in his eyes. Um, and it seems to be, uh, uh, not the letting down, but there seems to be a pattern here as I listen to you and the many different entities that you embarked on to the point where you started to rob banks and lots of challenges in your life quite determined on the one hand you know trying to pursue things that didn't work out and it just spiraled into lots of challenges and problems for you and the biggest one had just started you robbed your first bank you were now a fugitive in the eyes of the people that were finding looking for this robber how many banks did you go on to rob after that even when you held your little girl in your arms reed and said i'm not doing this again 12 12, 12. banks and the reason being is it sounds such kind of stupid but one i only could get whatever funds that teller had in front of them because i was by myself as a consequence i was only averaging around ten thousand dollars a bank robbery but you had obviously in the first two robberies, raise the money that you needed to cover the debt. So why did you go on robbing the banks, putting your life, your wife's, your child's at, at risk? What was it? Oh, and, and simply simply because our monthly expenses were probably knocking on the door around $9,000 a month when you include the mortgage, the car payments, insurance, food, everything. Our monthly outlay was around $9,000. Nothing to do with you as a person. I'm driven by greed, driven by the excitement of robbing the banks. Oh, it was no. It's, uh, gosh, I... I it's, it's, it, this, there, there's a whole part to it. I wasn't... We weren't working anymore. Patrice and I had left our sort of salary jobs and we started our own business and the business was successful and we but but unfortunately what happened was uh, we we did a food delivery service it sounds so obvious now but we patrice and i started this idea of delivering restaurant quality food to their customers are we talking before deliveroo and eat and all these other ones 1992 we came up with that concept in 1992 out of just the standard thing. We both had professional jobs. We're 
And most of the time, we used to go out to eat. You know, I'd just say, oh, let's go Chinese. Let's go. We'd go to restaurants every evening. But sometimes you just don't want to go out. You just want to go home and have something to eat. So we'd get a takeaway. And I remember we used to think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if instead of going to the even getting the takeaway, they could just deliver the food. So we had to, we came up with this idea and my wife Patrice went to restaurants and had to explain this concept to them, whereby you give us a little bit of a discount, 20, 25% from your menu price, which will enable us to, to offer it to your customers for the same price. Mm. So basically we are just a delivery service. And, and we were actually pretty successful with it. And and it, it, that was the, probably the bulk of the money that allowed us to do the the. So you the invested IVF. it in, right? And and then unfortunately, what we heard about was a massive company that was coming down the coast from LA, just and eating up all of the delivery services that were in 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 effect, making exclusive contracts with the restaurants, so they couldn't work with somebody else, and we saw them coming. And so we managed to sell the business to a competitor before it came, and they were all going to get wiped out. And it was. It was basically like a little mum and pop delivery store, and all of a sudden, you know, here comes Uber Eats and uh, mm. Let's Eat, whatever. They were going to wipe everybody out. So what happened was basically I was robbing the banks when the, all of the money ran out. And, it was, and I got this job working at, at a bank, but put it this way, the, my salary at the bank, my take-home salary every month didn't cover the mortgage. Obvious question, well, why didn't you sell your house then, you know? Because the market was depressed and because of the second and third that I'd taken out on the house, we wouldn't be able to sell the house and cover any of the obligations that well, we had. What I'm curious about is, is you know, bank robbery is quite a risky thing to do, quite a brave thing to do um, because of the consequences, you know, being shot by a security guard, by the police. And as you said, you weren't prepared to to give yourself up if, if it did sort of spiral to the point where you were about to be caught. But it doesn't strike me based on what you said in terms of your childhood, your education, your entrepreneurial skills and your abilities that you were criminally minded at all, yet you were doing probably one of the most criminal acts that there was at the time. You know, it's, it, I know this is going to sound strange. It's like I didn't consider myself to be a bank robber. Because of what I was doing and the way that I robbed the bank, I really, truly, I'm going to laugh, I considered myself to be like a mystery shopper. Seeing whether the, <laughs> seeing whether the bank employees are, are, adhering to the policies and things that you were taught. Would that have been your defense had you been caught? In, to some degree, yeah, I, as crazy as it sounds. And he's like, what? As you crazy thought as that it sounds. Through. It was like, but I, you know, because I never threatened anybody. I never brandished a weapon or anything like that. And I knew if you follow through with the training that you've been given, everything is going to be fine. And and the, the, the proof in the pudding is because that's what happened. Every time I, I went into the bank, I did my thing, the teller gave me the money, I left the bank. Same MO, every bank. Yes. I, I want to move forward a little bit because you did get caught. Yes. Or something happened where you were arrested. Just tell me about what happened at that point. So basically, you know, obviously... Um, I, I, I robbed my first bank in June of 2000. I robbed my last bank in June of 2001. At that point, 
I got myself a new job. I got myself a new job working for another software company, and it more than doubled my old salary. At that time, I broached the, the, the subject with Patrice, can we sell this house? I don't care what happens, let's just sell this house. And Patrice was like, oh, I hate this house. And I was like, oh, wish you told me that a year ago. So basically, we put the house up on the market for sale. At that exact same time, the FBI realized what happened to this motorcycle bandit. He was robbing a bank every single month. And now he hasn't robbed a bank now in almost nine months. So they were considering what happened to this guy. He's either moved out of state, he's in prison already or in jail for some other crime, or he's dead. So what they did was they took the best picture they had of me and sent it to every financial institution in San Diego and LA County, thousands of banks. And it was a teller at my personal bank that I'd been banking at for over 15 years. She saw the picture in the break room, FBI wanted, saw the picture of me and she made a joke. And she said, oh my God, that looks like Reed. And everybody laughed because, oh, you mean the British guy, that really personable British guy with that you know, lovely accent. Yeah. Everybody laughed, went back to work, thought nothing more of it. There was a new supervisor at the bank, and she took it upon herself to call the FBI. And they asked her, what's his name? And as a consequence of the FBI knowing my name, they subpoenaed all of my bank records. I probably banked over three or four different banks and had about six bank accounts. And what the FBI was able to see was that it would be a bank robbery and then over these six bank accounts, little deposits going in in all of these bank accounts. That added up to the amount that was taken. Or not necessarily, but just they could see a pattern. Mm -hmm. Then everything's sort of relatively quiet on my bank. There's a bank robbery then. Da, 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 mm -hmm. da, all of these little deposits. And it was that was enough for them to say, mm, we need to look into this. And then obviously they, oh, they knew my address. They, they were tapping our telephone. They were even surveilling us. I used to teach classes on a Friday morning and uh, exercise classes at, at a gym. And uh, they got memberships at the gym and came and took my exercise class. And uh, when they saw that our house was on the market, an FBI agent, two FBI agents, posed as husband and wife, came and got a viewing of our house. One of the things is also a schematic of the house. So they have the, know exactly the layout of the house. It was a beautiful house that we had at the time, six car garage, everything was beautiful. So they, they were adding all these bits together now and realizing mm, this could be our guy. What really forced the, their hand was when they realized, you know, if he goes back to England, we won't be able to get an extradition uh, warrant for him because we don't have enough evidence. Were you suspicious? Were you aware that they were onto you? Didn't have none, none whatsoever. Because don't forget, for me, I stopped robbing. The last bank I robbed was in June of 2001. Everything was quiet. September the 11th, 2001, a very big global event. Well, global, a very big American event in the sense that uh, obviously with 9 11. That was when they had the formation of the of Homeland Security. And as such, one of the statements was, we are putting so many resources into Homeland Security that unless there is some violence or some something that would warrant FBI investigation, if it's a crime that didn't involve any violence or anything like that, it's basically going to be mm. put on the back burner. Tell me about the day they arrested you. It was about... Um, about 5.30 in the morning, June the 3rd, 
2002. Remember it well. I was lying in bed and the, the sun was already up, 5.30 in the morning, and I was thinking about what I needed to do that day. Uh, I was lying in bed, Patrice was fast asleep, the sun was coming in through the bedroom window. All of a sudden, I'm just hearing, bam, 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 on the front door. And it's like, whoa. We lived in a private community. We had a private drive that came up to our house. There was no reason for anybody to be knocking on my front door. But you knew who it was. No, I didn't. I had no idea who it was. Right. So I thought, what? What, who's doing that? And, I, and again, why are you knocking so intently? That's kind of rude. Had you not in that time thought that they were searching for you? Had you never contemplated being caught? Had you thought you got away with it? You, you I think, especially after the thing, after the 9-11 thing, and they made this this announcement about, about you know, not categorizing nonviolent crimes very highly. By this time, obviously, we're talking four months since the last time I robbed a bank. Not that I got... I got blasé about it, but I thought if you're going to catch me, you would have caught me by now. And so the more time that's passing, the more I feel you don't, you, you, mm, you know, you you're not going to come it. and get me. So, so bam, 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 I get out of bed, Patrice is stirring. I said, don't worry, sir, I, I've got it, i got it. I go out through the bedroom and I'm walking now through the house. It's a beautiful, we had what was called a great room. It was massive. And the one side of the house was all glass. And we had a 360 degree view, ocean view, everything like that. I'm walking towards the front door, double doors. And as I'm getting to the door, and I'm, they're still banging. I'm like, you know what? When I open this door, somebody's going to be laying on the ground. And I pull the door open. I look down on my chest. Bing, bing, bing. Three red dots on my chest. I look up. Three FBI agents standing there. One shotgun, two handguns. Well, one was a rifle. Anyway, these dots are on me, and it's FBI, get on the f***ing ground. Oh, okay. Yeah, so somebody was on the ground. Yeah, it was me. So <laughs> I lay on the ground, and I get that obligatory knee on the back of the neck, bring my arms back, hook me up. If you comply, you're in that position five to ten seconds. I knew you comply. What am I going to do? Who am I? Why am I going to fight with the FBI here? So I'm on the ground, knee on the neck, hook me up, bring me to my feet. That's when they say, are you Reed Domingo? Yes. Boom. As soon as I said yes, then they walked me back into the house, sat me on the couch. And at that moment, about 15 FBI agents came flying in through the front door. Some went left, some went right, some went towards the garage because they knew where they were going because they'd Got a schematic of my house. Mm. They'd been there. So I'm sitting on the couch, handcuffed, and your FBI everywhere. I'm hearing shouts of clear, clear, clear. Next thing I know, I see Patrice's eldest son, who happened to be living with us at that time. He was about 19 at the time. They trot him out. He's out. He's all blurry, just in his, in his boxes, handcuffed. They put him on the other end of the couch. So he's sitting on one end, I'm on the other. FBI agent standing between us, all blacked out. There's a MP5, a semi-automatic, or actually a fully automatic uh, handgun, uh, rifle. Morgan's sitting there, I'm sitting on the thing, the, the FBI's everywhere. I look, so it's a funny thing, yeah. So I, I look over to Morgan, he's sitting there, and I said, Morgan, do you know what's going on? And he goes, no. And I, and I said, do you have any videos outstanding from Blockbuster? And he goes, uh, uh, no, I don't think so. And I'm like, <laughs> I said, Morgan, don't worry about it. And I told him, Morgan, I know what it's about. Just 
just relax and let them do their thing. And this is the first time that anyone other than the FBI who were tracking you knew that Reed Domingo had been involved in bank robberies because I, I'm imagining that it was your secret. No one yes. knew. No, I never told anybody. Anyone. Patrice didn't know. Patrice didn't know. Nobody knew. So this was something that you were living with. Yes. By yourself. None of your friends, mates. Oh, yeah. I had two best friends. I had two best friends when I was living in there that I met when I first went there in 1986. These were the first two people I met, James and Tony. They knew what you were doing? Well, Missy, you tell me if you would have told them. James was a sergeant in the San Diego Police Department. No. Tony, best man at my wedding, special agent in charge of the DEA. No. Mm. What happened to you, Reed? Because you were arrested, that ordeal. Patrice finds out your stepchildren, your daughter, maybe too young at this point mm. to understand. Mm -hmm. You went to prison from that moment until? Yes, until 2002, I got released. So I was in prison basically, um, sorry, 2005, what am I, it came in, I got arrested in 2002. So basically, yeah, I got arrested, I was in federal detention. Obviously at that time, they had, they had connected me with five of the bank robberies because in the first five, I used that motorcycle MO. That's where I got the moniker, the motorcycle bandit. I actually, but once I saw that they kept referring to me as the motorcycle bandit, I decided, you know, you better drop the motorcycle MO because you're gonna, there's, there's your calling card right there. So I robbed the first five banks that way and the, the success of seven banks, I didn't bother. I just came in baseball cap and glasses. Uh, so when the, so the FBI basically came to me with these five bank robberies, 20 years per bank, 100 years for you, fella. Like, damn. So obviously, they had no desire to really take this to trial and everything because it would cost them a fortune to put together a case for every single bank. So my attorney that my father paid for, again, as soon as he heard about my predicament, didn't blink, told Patrice, go out and find the best attorney you can find for Reed. Money, no object. You find the best attorney for him. Patrice secured a guy out of Las Vegas who was very much familiar with dealing with mob cases. So at that high level, mm. you know, high level felony, this is bank robbery. So my attorney basically met with the federal prosecutors and they said, if Mr. Domingo pleads guilty, instead of 100 years, we will ask for 10 years. So that was the deal that they came to me with. Obviously, when he broached that with me, I realized, gosh, okay, 10 years. I worked out that by the time I'd be released, my little girl would be a teenager. And I said, oh, gosh, do you think you could get me a better deal? And he said, well, yeah, I'm telling you right now, they don't want to take this to trial. So they are motivated for you to, to take a deal. So I said, well, can you get them to come down? He said, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get nine years or eight and a half or something like that. And I was like, no, oh, she'd still be just about a teenager then. Now, obviously, I knew I robbed 12 banks. And I, so I said to my attorney, do you think they'd be interested in some other banks that they're unaware of right now? And my attorney, a Vegas guy, quite, quite a salty dude, goes, yeah. He goes, he goes, they're a business. They're a business. And he described it in the form of like, a, a, they're a business with a P&L. And one of the lines on the P&L would say, bank robberies solved. And he said, what do you think they want to see in that box? Do they want to see five in that box or 12? And I was like, oh, I see your point. So I explained all of the other seven banks to him. 
And he said, okay, I will go and present this to the federal prosecutors. But before I leave, what's the maximum that you will do? And I said, five years. He said, okay, I'll go. Two days later, Domingo, attorney. <laughs> I, I had my attorney visit and he goes, yeah, they want a deal. Five years. Five years. Twelve robberies. Yeah. What was it like in prison for you? You know, honestly, Raf, it was not such a big thing for me. And do you know why? Because I went to boarding school. And I, I'm not trying to sound flippant. I know what you mean. But, but you know what I mean mm. in the sense of the structure mm. of it. You're told when to get up. You're told when to eat. You're told, and obviously, this is at least in the federal system, nobody's sitting around in the daytime drinking tea, playing pool, watching TV. Everybody in the, in the, in the federal uh, correctional system has a job. Everybody works every day. So um, obviously when I was in boarding school in the daytime, I went to lessons. In federal prison, you have a job. It's also another federal uh, mandate that if you haven't graduated high school, there's a fully functioning school within the federal compound. Staffed by regular teachers, qualified teachers, I was a teacher's assistant. So I was Mr. Johnson's teaching assistant, and I assisted him with the inmates. So I taught three classes a day, three in the afternoon and three in the evening. And that was my job. So I was a teaching assistant. So you didn't encounter any of the horror stories that you hear coming out of various American prisons. That wasn't your prison experience. No, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, that's the movie version. I think it's the movie version because first and foremost, and I, I think this has to be stated, American prison guards did not abuse the prison population. And in some ways, it kind of makes sense. And you could kind of understand this. What are those prison guards? They're normal people. This happens to just be my job. Mm -hmm. If you think I want to come and fight with you donkeys for eight hours every day, no, I do not. I just want to come in, you know, do my job, go home mm -hmm. to be with my family. Safe and sound. Yeah. So because of that, you didn't have an issue with, you know, you're never being abused by the by the the, the guards or anything like that. But equally, they want to make sure that everything is running smoothly. Mm. And even though the place is packed with guys that don't seem to necessarily conform to rules and, and things like that, everybody wants a quiet life. Yeah. Because in the federal system, if you F up, you F it up for everybody. Right. And that is the rule under which everybody lives. I'm not going to get into trouble or start trouble because if I do, it's going to have an impact on everybody else. We'll all be on lockdown, things like that. So what was really interesting from that is you didn't have like gangs that would go around and, and terrorize other inmates, uh, steal from them. Uh, I've, nobody got raped. I never saw anybody get raped mm. because why? You didn't need to. If you wanted to have sex with somebody, there were plenty of people that would want to have sex in exchange for something, a pair of trainers, mm. buy me this, buy me that. Um, so I was never, never felt like, like I had to watch myself because these guys were going to come and get me. It was, no, it was not like Shawshank Redemption or anything like but that. But what did you, how did it make you reflect about Reed? What, what did it teach you about yourself? Because whatever you do in prison, plenty of time behind the cell door where you sometimes use that time to think about who you are, what's going to happen next, because Patricia's outside, your little girl's outside, you know, 
we don't have much more time, but I'm really interested to know what you learned about yourself and whether it made any difference to who you become when you were released. Absolutely. You know, I, I found myself. I'll be honest, I really did find myself. It was, it was the first place that I realized, you know, it's all about you. They didn't give a crap as to who you were on the other side of that fence. You know, I was this, I was that, I was a captain of industry, I was a millionaire. They could not care, care less. It's mm. the person standing right here. Mm. So, and that's where I realized, Reed, you have something. I have an ability. And through being a teaching assistant, I did such a good job that after six months, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but again, they've got budget budgetary constraints. They have more inmates that need to be educated than they have a budget to employ qualified teachers. Mm -hmm. Here's with my 10 O levels, five A levels, and a degree in psychology. I had such a rapport with the inmates that they said, would you be interested in running your own class? It would now, instead of having three teachers, we'll now have four because one of the teachers will be you. I said, yeah, of course I'll do that. Why not? So I had my own class. I ran the class. And the weird thing is, Raf, I ran it just like boarding school. All the guys who've been there, when I'm ready to start the class, I would just say, all right, let's go. And when I said that, everybody shut up. And they listened to me while I explained what we're going to do for the day. There would be about 10, 15 minutes that we would do a sort of a joint exercise. And then I'd let everybody basically get on with their work at where they're at. Mm. And I would write little little word problems on the board, like uh, Susie Goodsnatch needs to catch a bus, needs to get to work. You know, she's going to take the bus and walk and then bicycle and everything. And I'd put the little bits together and say, how long does it take her to get to work? And the guys would look and we'd all work together as a class. And that's where I got the name Mr. Reed, because my name is Reed Domingo. But because of the high Hispanic population in the prison, they a lot of the guys were called Domingo Sanchez, Domingo Gutierrez, and everything. So they thought, oh, Domingo, eh, Condaway, and everything. Like, no, 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 I'm British. So, so it was that that they called, and they thought Reed was my last name, so they called me Mr. Reed. Reed. Okay. And as much as I said, no, 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 it's just Reed, I'm just Reed, like everybody else, they said, no, you're a teacher you deserve respect. And that's what I that's what I learned. So in a in a in a to, to encapsulate that, it it taught me to believe in myself. I became Mr. Reed. And I suddenly realized, Reed, you know, you have something. You have a rapport. And I and it was the first time in my life that I actually believed in myself and really felt that I could achieve anything I wanted. Um what become of your wife and daughter um did they support you during that time i mean it must have come as well, a great shock to her well yes yeah, so angelique was only four years of age mm. when i was in prison we decided between patrice and myself that we wouldn't tell angelique so we didn't we told angelique i worked on a ship she was four years of age four-year-old children will believe anything their parents tell them mm. so when they used to come and visit me every three months or so, because of where it was, and it was right there on, on, the, on the sea, and you'd see the big container ships sail by, Angelique thought I worked on a ship. This might be, sound crazy, so that whole time we never told Angelique. And at the end, when I got deported back to England, we told Angelique that I got a job in England. And obviously she came out to join me in England, so that made everything seem for real. We never told Angelique that I went to prison. Until? Six months ago. 
six months ago. Six months ago, January 2023, I told my 24-year-old daughter what happened to her daddy 21 years ago. And why did you tell her six months ago? Because I I needed to start, I decided to, to do a podcast called Time with Mr. Reed to address an injustice that I was dealt by from the US government. I asked for a waiver to be able to go back to live in America with Patrice and Angelique. And the US government said, fine, you have a, you have a clean criminal record for 15 years and we will consider you to be rehabilitated. I gave them 17 years and they said no. So it was at that moment that I said, screw it then. We need to address this another way. I'd exhausted everything through the prison sort of system and, and immigration, so to speak. So now I'm on a path that I'm trying to uh, draw some attention to my plight and get the ear of an American politician to realize that I complied with everything that the US government asked of me. 15 years they asked of me, you keep your nose clean for 15 years and we'll let you come back. And they didn't. So now I need somebody in, a, in American politics to basically do this for me. And my final question is, why do you believe you deserve that second chance of being able to live in America, a country where you robbed banks and they deemed you a criminal, that they deported you from? Why do you believe you deserve that second chance? Because I, exactly that. I think everybody deserves a second chance. And I feel that I have demonstrated with 17 years of my life, showing you, showing that I've been dedicated to this desire of getting back to my family. I've supported my family this entire time, and they still live in America right now, and I, and I understand that, you know, I understand how that is. Patrice was here for a while, but it didn't really resonate with her. She'd lived in California her entire life, and suddenly coming to England, there's a big difference between England and California. Um, but I deserve the second chance because only because oh, because I did everything that the government asked me. And I yes, I did something wrong, but equally, I went to prison. I paid my debt to society for that. And just, justifiably, I went to prison. I will never infer that I shouldn't have gone. I broke the law. I deserve to go to prison. Because I pled guilty and I assisted in my own prosecution, I was afforded that leniency of instead of 100 years, I only ended up serving just a little over three and a half years because of good time and everything like that. Plus, I should mention this, the federal judge who sentenced me also acknowledged the fact that I had really helped in my own prosecution and instead of five years, dropped a year off and only sentenced me to four years, which netted out to be three and a half with good time and everything. So... It is about a second chance. And I realized I did something wrong, but I, I went to prison. I lost my freedom. And, and, I, you know, I, and a lot besides, and I'm not whining, I deserve to do that. But that's done now. Should we all be, be judged for one thing or one thing that happened in our life? I, I, you know, it wasn't a good thing, but that was 2002. Here's 2023. In the, in the succeeding 21 years, have I not done sufficient to warrant getting that second chance? Really, it, to me, it's, it really is simple as that. I'm not a danger to anybody. I truly am not. Even when I was committing those crimes, I purposely made sure that I did 
that in such a way that it didn't traumatize anybody. I don't believe there should be anybody out there that is dealing with anything as a consequence of my actions, other than me, of course. No. And it did. It's a ma I've lost a lot. I've lost, you know, I have lost Patrice. You know, we're not going to be together anymore. But things have changed for us now. Now we're really good friends. And, um, you know, and I have a daughter. My daughter has recently just got engaged and in fact she's going to be getting married in four months and for their honeymoon i've i'm going to have my daughter and her new husband come and spend their honeymoon here in the united kingdom but you'll never be able to go and visit her because of this restriction at this moment and i do realize this where things are right now i am not able to re-enter the united states but i would like to believe that if i can if I can continue getting my story out there. And again, obviously, I, I have this podcast. It's called Time with Mr. Reed. Uh, it's available on Apple, Spotify, etc. If you listen to that, I think it explains a lot more than what we've covered in, in this of last course. hour. And have you written a book? That was something that we were considering. Uh, and, I, and I'm still open to that. I don't necessarily think I might be the best person to write. It may be in conjunction with a good ghostwriter. I think there's a really good story there. But in addition, this, I think, would make a really interested, interesting sort of serialized drama. So I'm working with somebody right now, the producers of Time with Mr. Reed, and they're obviously putting it out there with companies like Netflix and some other production companies to see if there's an interest in turning this story into a, a dramatized serial. Mr. Reed, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me. Thank really you, Bob. It's been an thank absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast, so please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. The podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. Thanks for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn. Thanks for tuning in. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.